Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to podcast episode 30 of our CCRN review series, where today we are going to be talking about bleeding esophageal varices. I do have a few announcements that I'd like to make before we move forward, however, and that is in March, which is this month, March of 2023, I am going to be holding a live Q&A series for preparation for the CCRN review. And the way it's going to be set up is I'm going to announce the dates and times, and I do that via email. And then uh, you can register at that point. And when we get together for these little sessions lasting anywhere between 30 and 60 minutes, I'm going to have a grouping of CCRN types of questions. You then are able to answer the question in the chat, and then we're going to discuss the rationale. So it's a different method for preparing for the CCRN exam. Now, in order to find out information about this live CCRN Q&A series, which, oh, by the way, is free to all of my subscribers, is to head on over to my website, which is khoppypresents.com, and subscribe. Get on my email list because I will email out to you the dates and times of all of the sessions in this series, and you'll be able to enroll for the ones that work well for you. I encourage you to subscribe also to uh, receive emails because I, anywhere from one to three times a week, will send out CCRN type questions for you in order to prepare. I send out links to my podcast via email and I keep you up to date on events that I have going on. So please do subscribe. Also, another announcement is that this summer, which is the summer of 2023, I'm going to be offering a critical care nursing summer camp series. And um, it will start in mid-May and go through mid-August. And again, there will be several different classes that are held in a webinar, uh, a webinar format throughout the summer. So you might be thinking about that. And again, once you subscribe, you'll be getting additional information regarding that via email. Final announcement is please come and join me on Facebook at Khoppy Presents because there I offer up CCRN questions that we can answer and discuss on Facebook. So several different ways to get questioned 
and to kind of analyze and evaluate your knowledge base prior to or even after, just for fun, taking the CCRN. So without further ado, let's get to our content today, and that is blading esophageal varices. So the prototype patient that we need to discuss that has bleeding esophageal varices is the patient with portal hypertension. And the patient that is the prototype patient who has portal hypertension, I'm going to really focus in on this patient, and that is the patient with cirrhotic liver disease. So when you look at alcoholism, which is very pervasive throughout the world, actually, um, we see that about 25% of patients who are alcoholics will wind up with cirrhotic liver disease, which increases portal portal, uh, pressures or creates portal hypertension and increases the patient's risk for formation of varices and variceal bleed. Now, we have to start out with a little bit of anatomy in order to put this whole thing together. So I want you to think about the portal vein, and the portal vein goes into the liver in order to deliver blood that's full of wastes and nutrients and drugs and whatever we ingest, quite literally. And all of those things are delivered into the liver for processing. Now... Because of, I'm using in my example, alcoholism, over time, the liver can become very non-distensible and fibrous and nodular. And so what has to happen then as a compensatory response is that as the portal vein tries to bring that flow into the liver, portal pressures will have to increase. That just makes good sense, does it not? Because if the liver is becoming more non-distensible, pressures have to rise in order for that portal vein to deliver flow in order to process the blood appropriately. And so that's going to create a situation in which we have portal hypertension. Now, you know, at the you know, at the end of the day you might be saying to yourself, "So what's the bad thing about having portal hypertension?" Well, guys, when uh, pressure in the portal vein goes up, we see a back pressure, kind of a transmission of that high pressure back to the spleen, and that causes the patient's spleen to enlarge. So very often when patients have high portal pressures, we see those patients also develop splenomegaly or an enlarged spleen. And you know, you may think to yourself, well, you know, in the grand scheme of things, what's so bad about having a large spleen? Well, I want you to think about the spleen as a platelet reservoir. So as the spleen gets larger and larger, it sequesters more and more platelets within it. And so if the spleen's getting larger and it's sequestering more platelets in it, our patient's overall platelet count is going to drop which is never a good thing when somebody has liver disease because we know that the liver has a function of putting out things like plasma proteins and clotting factors. And so when the liver can't put out adequate clotting factors because it's not working well, and then we have the spleen that's sequestering platelets, we're going to have a huge problem as far as bleeding is concerned. 
And if you've ever worked with somebody with liver disease or hepatic failure, you know that those patients have a high likelihood of bleeding, and that makes them a very poor surgical candidate, for example. Now, one of the other problems with that building up of portal pressure is that the portal pressure will be transmitted back toward the veins that are, that are in the stomach and the esophagus. And so when we talk about varices, varices are outpouchings of veins, not arteries, guys. We're talking veins here. And just so that we have our language straight, there is no such thing as a varice, okay? One is called a varix. More than one, it's called varices. So when you pop a varix, it's termed varix, not a pop a varice, all right? So one singular is a varix, multiple are varices. And so as that back portal pressure is transmitted into the esoph esophageal veins, which normally they're very small little bridging vessels. They're not meant to take on a lot of blood flow under high pressure. And that's why they pouch out like little berries. And in fact, they pouch out in such a way that they form a column in the esophagus. And so when we do an EGD, for example, and we look down into the esophagus, what we see is we see that the varices kind of line up in columns. And then we grade the varices based on how those columns of varices are um, distending out into the esophagus. So needless to say, if you have a small little bridging vessel that now has high pressure because of all that backflow and a whole lot of blood and it's pouched out like a little grape or a little berry, you can best bet when those little varices pop, you are going to have a pretty large bleed. And one of the things that differentiates it from a bleed that occurs in the stomach or the duodenum is that typically when somebody has an esophageal hemorrhage, it is a painless oral hemorrhage. And so be aware of the CCRN question that starts out with, you know, your patient, uh, your alcoholic patient develops this bleed that, or actually painless oral hemorrhage, right away your brain needs to go over to bleeding esophageal varices. And these patients can bleed huge amounts. Um, I mean, we're talking, you know, the equivalent of a unit or two or more of blood. They, they can very rapidly exsanguinate. And so that's an important thing to keep in mind because we have to get in there and stop the bleed. That's incredibly important. And we're going to talk about some mechanisms by which we do that. So again, portal pressure really starts the whole thing out. And we see portal pressure really creating havoc within the system, creating all kinds of things in addition to variceal bleeds like ascites and so on. But the focus of our attention here in this podcast is basically the patient with bleeding esophageal varices. So I want to mention also, however, that varices... Uh, can occur within the stomach and the esophagus. And of course, that's been our focus. 
but realize that varices can also happen down at the very distal end of the uh, GI tract as well, creating some uh, hemorrhoids, for example, that can have some very, um, very active bleeds. Okay, so let's move on then in our discussion. Let me go ahead and flip over to my next slide. I'm actually um, kind of talking about this using my slide series here. And if you're interested, guys, I, I do have my full CCRN review recorded with, um, with corresponding handouts available on my website and so it's a 30-hour course, and you can get 30 continuing education hours, and it's one of those 24-7, 365 online programs that is accredited for 30 hours. And what makes it different from other CCRN, CCRN reviews is that you have lifetime access to this, and um, so it won't knock you out after... Um, a year, 18 months. It's a lifetime access. I think it's a good resource. So check it out over on my website. Okay, so moving on then, we know that only 50% of variceal hemorrhages will stop spontaneously. And the greatest risk for recurrent hemorrhage is within that 48 to 72 hour point. Nearly 50% of rebleeds occurs within the first 10 days. And we really can use the rebleeding factor to determine the likelihood as to whether the patient will or will not survive. So we need to get in there and stop the bleed. Of course, we want to start some large bore IVs. We want to get fluid and blood products going. But if we don't stop the bleed in any way, shape, or form, we know we're just feeding fuel into the fire and we're not going to do anything about it unless we stop the bleed. We're not going to turn things around until we stop the bleed. So we need to get in there with endoscopy. We need to get in there, and there are a few different things that we can do. We can inject a sclerosing agent to scar over the bleeder. Uh, we can inject epinephrine to constrict the area around the bleed to stop the bleeding. We can also get in there on endoscopy and place bands, and this is very common. So this is called endoscopic band ligation, where we literally sink an endoscope down, we look for the varics or varices that are bleeding, and we literally um, kind of deploy uh, what looks like a rubber band around the neck of the varics. And what we wind up doing is we wind up strangling strangling um, the varix, and it winds up sloughing off, dying and sloughing off, and then it gets excreted um, via the GI tract. So endoscopy is important. So whether we sclerose it, inject an agent that will sc scar over the bleeder, or whether we use epinephrine in order con to constrict the vessels around the bleed, or whether we go in there and apply a band to the bleed, uh, those are all methods by which we stop the bleeding. Depending upon what type of uh, healthcare institution you work in and what's available to you, we can also go in there with an esophageal tamponading device, like a Blakemore or a Minnesota tube. 
And what we do with those tubes is, again, that's not something, of course, nursing puts in. That is something that is put in probably most commonly in an emergency department setting. And this is a tube that's in advanced via the nose or the mouth uh, down into the esophagus. And then there is an anchoring balloon that's down in the stomach. And that balloon is inflated in order to anchor this device. And then there is what looks almost like a sausage-shaped uh, balloon along the surface area of the um, the catheter that is um, inserted that when inflated will tamponade or press on the uh, variceal bleed in order to stop the bleeding. We all say that, you know, the esophageal tamponading device is really very much kind of a Hail Mary sort of approach to stop the bleeding in somebody that's super critical. It can be used if during endoscopic ligation, sclerotherapy, or uh, injection of epinephrine, if that doesn't work, we can use it if it's a diffuse bleed that we're not able to get a rubber band around in order to strangle the varix and cause it to stop bleeding, slough off, and die. So those are some things that we can do. Um, we also want to get in there with um, our IV, and we talked about fluids and replacing blood products, but also using uh, sandostatin, which is called octreotide. And what it does is it reduces splanchnic blood flow. And splank the splanchnic beta vessels is actually the beta vessels that is responsible, <clears throat> excuse me, for supplying the esophagus. So the esophagus and the stomach, it's called the splanchnic bed. And so we give IV sandostatin in order to reduce flow to the bleed. And all of this is happening kind of simultaneously. Another thing that we can do in order to um, stop flow to the bleed is we can administer vasopressin. Vasopressin is a vasoconstrictor. And as a vasoconstrictor, you have to be very, very mindful of the fact that vasopressin is not a selective vasoconstrictor. So while it will constrict flow to the gut, uh, flow to actually the esophagus and the stomach, you're going to uh, reduce bleeding in that way. It also reduces flow elsewhere. It also causes vasoconstriction elsewhere. So now we're talking about the heart, for example. So if you have a patient that is going to be getting vasopressin, and they already have a pre-existing cardiac disease, coronary artery disease, then thought needs to be put into accompanying the vasopressin with perhaps IV nitroglycerin because we could cause coronary vasoconstriction and MI or stroke by using vasopressin. And that's why you don't see vasopressin used as much anymore um, for bleeding esophageal varices because we're much more aggressive at getting in there with endoscopy and O-band or O-ring uh, ligation in order to stop the bleed, but it can be used. And one of the other things that I want to be very clear on is that when we use vasopressin for a GI bleed, um, bleeding esophageal varices specifically, 
the dose is much higher than what we would use for, say, for example, a patient with severe sepsis. And so be aware of that. Um, the, the dose is, well, depending upon the dose, it could be, you know, several times higher than what we use for blood pressure management in patients with severe sepsis. So replacing fluids, we want to get those fluids on board. We're shooting for 0.5 to 1 cc's per kilogram per hour of urine output. That's what we're really hoping for. You know, it's kind of a double-edged sword as to what isotonic IV solution we want to use. Do we want to use lactated ringers? That's isotonic. Well, yeah, that's true. But, excuse me, just taking a sip of water here. If we're using lactated ringers, keep in mind that the lactate portion of the lactated ringers has to be broken down by the liver into bicarbonate. And so that may be a problem if the liver is so compromised that it can't do that. But then again, you know, normal saline isn't the best thing either um, because patients with liver disease already have problems with too much sodium in their body because the liver, who's responsible for breaking down aldosterone, can't break it down normally. So they already, at, you know, the, at the start, have problems with sodium retention. So adding more sodium in the form of normal saline may not be our best bet. So what we have a tendency to do is we look at what is the lesser of the two evils and we choose normal saline at the end of the day. That's really what most commonly happens. We may use colloids as well, albumin, to expand circulating volume. Certainly need to make sure that adequate potassium and magnesium are available. Keeping in mind, guys, that magnesium hangs on to potassium. So therefore, if you are chasing a patient's potassium, if you're giving K-Lor, K-Dur, K in the Volutrol, K every which way known to man, maybe you have patients sniffing lines of K to try and get the K level up. Okay, so you would never do that. You would never have a patient sniff lines of K. But again, just bringing it up for illustration purposes, if you're chasing the K everywhere, somebody needs to take a step back and say, what's the mag? Because if the magnesium level is low, then you're going to waste potassium from the body. So just to give you a line in the sand here, a magnesium level less than one is considered to be a hypomagnesemic emergency. So again, making sure adequate mag is on board in order to hold on to K. Also, thiamine replacement is going to also be extremely important for, um, for these folks as well. So we're going to start our IVs. We're going to get in blood and fluids and clotting factors and plas replace plasma proteins. Platelet, platelet infusion may be needed in a patient who is both actively bleeding with a platelet count less than 50, for example. We want to be very careful not to over-transfuse. That's, that's very important because you could have a uh, risk of rebleed with overtransfusion. And then monitor the patient closely for hypocalcemia, replace calcium as needed. And we talked about the platelets as well. If we do use a, an esophageal tamponading device, we want to make sure that the patient is intubated. They're not going to sink one of these tubes unless the patient is intubated 
because the risk of aspiration is incredibly high. And um, so that, that's an important thing to keep in mind. And then typically on the CCRN, you'll get a question about the piece of equipment that must always be available at the bedside whenever you have an esophageal tamponading device in place. And you are going to answer that with the word scissors. Because you can imagine if that balloon that's in the esophagus slips up in any way, shape, or form, if you lose volume of air in the balloon that's sitting in the stomach and this uh, device slips up, it's going to give a whole new way to airway obstruction. And so a scissors cut through the tube is going to immediately release the air in the balloons. And that's why you will choose that as your answer. Now, last thing I want to mention here is TIPS procedure. And TIPS procedure is really a Hail Mary to take off some of or reduce some of the high portal pressures. It's called transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt TIPS. So what we used to do before TIPS, guys, is we would take these guys to surgery We would operate on them, and most of them died because with a bad liver, that increased the surgical risk so high. So the beauty here of TIPS is this patient's abdomen does not get opened. They go to interventional radiology, and they get this um, shunt that is placed by going transjugular down into the superior vena cava, through the right atrium, and then immediately into the inferior vena cava. And through the inferior vena cava, it is inferior vena cava, it's threaded down into the hepatic uh, system. And see, here's the thing. The portal vein and the hepatic vein, they kind of run parallel to one another. And so once we get into the liver, Basically, they push through or they create a shunt, if you will, between the hepatic vein and the portal vein. And portal vein, that's where, you know, that's where they have all of the high pressures. So some of that high pressure is automatically transmitted from the portal vein to the hepatic vein, and it reduces overall portal pressure. Now, that isn't a cure. This is a bridge. It's a bridge to transplant, let's say. Or it's a bridge to extending this patient's life a bit longer. And, you know, there are complications. There are certain patients that would not be able to tolerate tips. For example, let's just take a person with right-sided heart failure. If you took all this blood under pressure and shifted it, from the portal vein into the hepatic vein, and it comes right back up to that right heart and floods the right heart with more blood under more pressure, well, that's not going to work. So things like heart failure, severe pulmonary hypertension, severe tricuspid insufficiency, those are all no-nos when it comes to the TIPS procedure. So it doesn't mean, you know, um, when we talk about tips. It doesn't cure the patient. It doesn't mean that the patient no longer will need, let's say, lactulose uh, in order to bind with ammonia and excrete it through the GI tract. 
It's just basically buying the patient time. Well, guys, I hope you've enjoyed this talk about bleeding esophageal varices. Remember, head over to my website at www.khoppypresents.com. And if you'd like a full CCRN review online, uh, all of the information is there for you to take a look at. Thank you so much for your attention, guys. Have a blessed day. Bye-bye.